This is Boom Goddess Radio, igniting inspiration in primetime women. We are Jennifer Davis-Page, B.B. Peters, and Dr. Andrea Gould. So today we're talking about how life has blossomed for Bella Vivante since she retired as professor of classics from the University of Arizona three and a half years ago. She has been able to explore several creative outlets and to do so in joyous, uplifting ways. What a treat. And and it looks as though Bella is doing many, many more hours of work and pleasure, probably more so than you had time to do when you were working as a professor. That's absolutely true. I am very busy. I've come to realize I have not retired from life. I just retired from my former job, and I'm able to do so much more of things I truly enjoy. So definitely life after retirement is going great for me. And there is a natural joy that is surrounding you. It is evident in your eyes, in your smile, and in the color and texture of your hair. It is all there, and we are so glad that you're here. Welcome, Bella. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for that acknowledgement. That really just uplifts me. I'd love to begin with just talking about your name. Okay. But, you know, both of us have always wanted to know what a beautiful name, and how did that originate? Well, my first name is my given name. My parents were Eastern European Jews, and that was not an uncommon Eastern European Jewish name. But my last name, it's now coming close to 20 years, came to me in a dream. And the dream was so powerful. So at first I was using it as my stage name, which was great. But then I was having to fill out some forms. And as I was writing my former name, it's, I had to force myself to write it. It just wasn't me any longer. So went down to City Hall and legally changed my name. And it reminds me that it's like beautiful life force. Yes. Vivante. I mean, you couldn't have picked a better name. Exactly. So again, it was some cosmic force that came to me in my dream that led me to this. And do you think that that moment sort of began the path of some sort of internal change or search or knowing? I think I like your use of the word surge. Because at the time, I did not feel like it was a radical shift in how I was living my life. But I did go back into dance again, and I went back into theater again. So it was like sparking me to reconnect once again with that creative part of myself that Academia kills creativity, I mean, to the max, and I know I had a lot of it really pushed down in me while I was actively working as a professor. So, yes, uh, I think you really hit it right there. You know, I want to comment on that because I thought I was quite alone by the time I finished my Ph.D., And I actually did travel to Greece, and I was wondering why I was depressed Mm -hmm. after achieving all of that. And what I came to while I was touring the Greek islands was that my creative self had been silenced by academia. So that's just an aside, but 
Mm-hmm. But it's an unfortunate, very heavy aside because many of us who go into academia, it's because we do have creative impulses and we do want to be able to practice them. And unfortunately, the institution, it may support a few, but I was not one of them. It can so, crush us. So do you two think that it's because of the bureaucracy and the processes and the requirements? And what is it that makes it so? Well, definitely the institutionalization. Whenever anything becomes an institution, yes, the bureaucracy of the institution takes over. I mean, look at religion. Many of us feel spiritual but have no connection with official religion. And I think it's the same notion. The other thing about academia that I've heard over the years is you have so many intelligent people with no real power. You know, and the segue to being an educator, the way you are an educator now, is so impressive. And the way you expose your students, be they women who are are signing up for travel or whether they be students, is basically such an expansive experience. And that, to me, is what education is all about. So now you've found, recreated a metier for yourself. That is absolutely true. I love teaching adult continuing ed classes because they come there because they want to be there. No one's having to fulfill any requirements. I don't have to force them to read. I don't have to be a dentist and pull teeth every time I want a response uh, to a question. And that is the attitude I went into teaching in the first place. And then I had to learn so much in order to be able to do it by the institutional system instead of the creative way I wanted to teach. So yes, this for me is glorious. And I have to add a little uh, anecdote here. I decided years ago when I was in college that I wanted to teach at a college level because I believed I would be teaching adults. Well, of course, my first day was a rude awakening and the amount of discipline I had to deal with with students. But now I'm finally fulfilling what my first desire was, which was to teach adults. And I don't have to grade them. I can go in and do my thing, and we can have our wonderful exchange. And yes, it is ideal. It's lovely. And so after all these years, I get to do what I set out to do in the first place. The way we experience, the way we really learn is through everything being connected. Yes. And what happens when we teach through an institution is that the breadth of, of transmission becomes narrowed, whereas now you've got the world as your stage in terms of literature, in terms of drama, in terms of history, in terms of architecture. How exciting. Tell us a little bit about some of your favorite Um, ways of integrating all of that incredible knowledge into, let's say, a trip or a course. Okay. So I'll start actually with lectures, because I happened to give a lecture uh, yesterday morning to the Green Valley Forum Club. This was a packed room. I mean, there must have been 300 people. I was astounded. I expected 25 or 50. And my lecture was on the true story of Helen of Troy, 
because the figure of Helen was far more complex than just Helen of Troy. But it's material I love, so I'm up there. And a lot of teaching is dramatic, and so my background as an actor, you know, goes right into that. And they were with me the entire way. So, it, you know, I'm not comparing myself to a rock star or a great comedian, but it's the same idea. You've got to connect with your audience, and then you keep feeding each other. If the audience is with you, you go with it. And so it's this whole, you know, spiraling of energy and creativity. And that was absolutely lovely. And so for my trips, as when I was teaching, I was fortunate to lead a lot of student trips, so that gave me the foundation. But then I started leading my own adult trips, which was wonderful for uh, the same reason. Plus, I could get uh, higher-level hotels and restaurants with my adults than I could with the students, so that was another nice uh, little perk. Um, but it's the same energy I bring to everything. So organizing a trip cater to what the people on the trip want, and that can be on a variety of themes. It can be theater, it can be art, it could be focus on women and goddesses, say, I think, Boom Goddess Radio. Yes. We should get a women goddess trip going to Greece. Yes. That bet. would be so fantastic. Yes. And then, in addition to the organizing, I give lectures either separately, say, at the hotel or as we're going around. Um, so casually, you know, as we're walking, people ask me questions, and I'm just not the sort of person who says, oh, come see me in my office, you know, I can only answer you nine to five. Whether it's eight in the morning or midnight, you ask me a question and I'll answer you, and, you know, we're off. It um, sounds like a long, ongoing conversation that is so nurturing and so, in a sense, mind-expanding. Yes. Because the specific material is something usually with ancient Greece or traveling, say, with modern Greece or modern Greek culture. Um, but yes, it is very expansive. And as familiar as I am with the material, someone always either asks a question or has a comment that gives me a new way of looking at it, which is... What, to me, teaching is about, it's not a one-way street. It's a two-way communication, because I'm always learning, too. And if I weren't learning, it would be boring, and it would be a dead end. But because it is this ongoing sharing communication, it's lovely, and I get to do things I love to do, like travel to Greece. And what about the kind of the uh, specifics of it? So how many people travel? Is it co-ed? How often do you do the trips? We'd love to hear more about that. So the <clears throat> trips that I've led have all been co-ed. I think it would be wonderful, as I mentioned, you know, a woman's only trip. Uh, we could certainly uh, see about arranging that. But yes, they've been co-ed. So um, I end up making all the arrangements. I have my contacts in Greece who do all the local arrangements. And then, you know, they're the subcontractor, you might say. 
but I have very good connections with them. In fact, we're very close friends. And they're not just any regular old travel agency, not that I want to put travel agents down, but they are themselves educators. So the director of this group, she has a PhD in history. And how did this travel idea come about of creating these trips? What uh, creative uh, pot in you opened to make this happen? So... Probably to begin with, the fact that I was born in Europe, and I was four and a half by the time we came to the States, having lived in several different countries and already spoken different languages by that time. And uh, up until my early or mid-20s, I was always somewhere on the East Coast. And the East Coast has much more of an orientation towards Europe than we do here, or the West Coast. So connection with Europe was always part of me anyway. And then once I dropped out of college, I was one of the 60s turn-on, tune-in, drop-out folks. So I traveled to Israel, lived in Israel for a while, traveled through Europe. Then with my, when I went back to school and my major being Greek, so... Again, that came up. I was fortunate as a junior then um, of graduate work, or third year of graduate work, to spend a year studying in Greece. So that connection with Europe, connection with travel, and not only travel per se, but connection with other cultures. So because of my own background, I've always had a multicultural mindset. I'm always interested in other people, other cultures, other languages. It's just part of my DNA, you might say. Speaking of your DNA, you mentioned that you had displaced person status. Yes. And that we know that you were born in a camp. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit, any memories of that time? Well, I was a little over a year when we left, so I personally don't have memories. But from what my mother uh, tells me, um, it was not a pleasant experience, as you might imagine. My mother had met my father in a farm labor camp in Siberia during the war, which was a whole other part of the war most people don't know about. She was fortunate still to be with her mother after the war when they thought they were returning home to Poland. They saw that was impossible. So then the Jewish agency helped get them from Poland to the displaced persons, DP camp in Germany, uh, where I ended up being born. Uh, So the stories I heard from my mom is how she walked across Europe pregnant with me. Uh, My dad arrived eight months later because he ended up getting separated. But it was a horrible situation. If I have any memory at all, it's, again, like a trace memory of having heard so many languages and by a year, perhaps I was beginning to speak a few phrases of Yiddish, but having heard so many different ones, um, I know we then ended up living in Paris for almost a year, and a lot of displaced Jews did end up in Paris uh, at that time. And I know we lived in the part of Paris where Edith Piaf lived, so I still have this. Even though my parents were Orthodox Jews, I know they didn't go to the bots in Paris, but nevertheless, somehow I have this connection with the music of Edith Piaf. 
Then we ended up in Cuba for two years. So Yiddish, French, Spanish, and Cuban Spanish is like the fastest spoken language in the world. It's like just, you know, just off the scale. So we ended up coming to the States when I was four and a half, settling in Atlanta, Georgia, of all bizarre places. And I remember two things about learning English. My mom's sister and husband and their daughter, who was my age, had come over through the refugee program. So they got here two years sooner than we did. But then I remembered as I, you know, became adept at English, of course, about five years old, everyone telling me to slow down. Because here I was in Atlanta, Georgia, Southern drawl, speaking English like I spoke Cuban Spanish, which was just no one could ever understand me. (laughs) It's so interesting how the polyglot, multicultural development occurred in you. And when we come back from a tiny break, really want to hear about how Greece became so primary in your mind. We are back with the lovely Ms. Bella Vivante, who is sharing remarkable parts about her life, her history, about her creativity, and we are just about to dive into talking to her about her passion and experiences with Greece. Right, majoring in Greece after being exposed to one way or the other, all these different countries, all these different languages. Tell us about the rise of Greece in your in your psyche. So all the way back in the third grade, I remember being fascinated by Greek mythology. Now, it didn't continue in a straight linear development, but that's like a big memory. And then, you know, time went on, time went on. Um, I'll first actually dovetail into the subject of theater, which will bring me back to Greece again. So after my experience in Israel and coming back to the States, I moved to New York City with the intention of becoming an actor. So I started taking classes at Neighborhood Playhouse and was very much into it. But at the time, I was totally paralyzed, afraid of going on auditions. You can't be an actor if you don't go on audition. So I put that to the side and went back to school and eventually decided I was going to go on to graduate school. And I was finishing at Columbia in comparative literature, French and American drama. So I was still maintaining theater, but now in an academic um, environment. And then before my senior year, I took a course in Greek and Roman drama from a fantastic teacher at Barnard. And I realized if I wanted to understand modern drama, I really needed to understand the ancient. So I took a course in the Greek language, fell completely in love with the Greek language. And because I didn't have too many courses to complete my degree, my last year I just doubled and tripled up on all these Greek courses applied to graduate school, and lo and behold, almost every school accepted me. So language, culture, theater, all dovetailed together. And so as I was studying out at Stanford, one of the things we did 
was every semester we used to have a play reading of an ancient Greek or Roman play. And so these became more and more elaborated until we put on full productions. Well, I was always the lead character <laughs> in all these I full wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so shy and retiring, you know, they had yes. to push me onto the stage, right? right? And then it ended up, um, we did two full productions, and fortunately in the theater department at the time was a Greek man who was able to direct us in ancient Greek. And not only that, he got us speaking the ancient Greek like a living language instead of like just words on a page. So again, all of these things spiraled around, feeding into each other. The language was feeding the theater, the theater was feeding the language. And so over the years, either acting in Greek productions or sometimes when the dearth, what academia was doing to me was just so extreme that I ended up doing some community theater. So it's always been there to some extent. And so my dramatic flares, if I may say that, you know, have been there in my teaching and then I've been able to pursue them. Um, now, in my advanced age, I've got a level of self-confidence, and I don't have the same fears I had before. And when I decided this past June to audition uh, for Borderlands, one of the main theater companies here, I nailed it. Oh. <laughs> I was ecstatic. And I got cast in a Tucson Pastorella, which is the 21st year of that production. And so now I'm back. Uh, I did two other auditions, which I know went well, even though I didn't get immediately cast. But it doesn't bother me anymore. And I know I can do it. And so that's now on my path to continue. You know, we have been talking about creativity over the past couple of podcasts. And one of the things that you're illustrating so beautifully is the the alchemy, the mixture of so many different strands of DNA, experience, hardship, place, who we meet, and to be able to, in a sense, the image that I got is that you can pull the joystick back and you can raise yourself into a stream that you sense is there yes. and then to feel the joy from that. And then, of course, when we feel that extreme joy, it magnetizes other experience, opens our brains to what's going on. And then in addition to that, uh, the lack of fears that mm. Bella herself has been dispelling all along. So here we are at this age, 50, 60 plus, and we are able to look back and say we ha we were held back by certain fears we are acknowledging them that they were present and now we're free of those fears is that and the most amazing and glorious experience to have bella oh i am so thankful that i have lived to this age and all the as you said hardships and challenges i've had i mean to get over my background parents being holocaust survivors and i got it full force again into the dp camp you know everybody's i got it completely full force so 
personal challenges, creative, professional challenges. But yes, I've worked through them, and I'm so thankful I have lived long enough that I have come to this side of them, that I can enjoy what I am able to enjoy and do what I'm able to do now. Oh, definitely such gratitude. One of the topics that comes up a lot in our listening audience is, is it too late? What do I do now? I'm losing energy. I'm losing steam. I'm losing some of my capacities. And yet we know that the more we utilize our capacities, the more they grow. And you are such a fabulous example of continuous creativity, continuous growth, lifelong learning. Lifelong learning. And I feel I'm doing so much more now than when I was younger, both the creative impulses I'm much more active. I work out regularly at water aerobics. I'm a folk dancer. Um, so, yeah, maybe I can't ski like I was trying to once upon a time years ago, but I feel I'm able to do so much more than when I was held back by all my fears, which really became like locked doors that, you know, were just impossible to get through. And how did the idea and the action of doing dance. How has that informed your life? So, um, again, it's definitely creative. It's physical and movement-based, so, you know, getting the body movement and all moving and all the energy that comes from that. And connecting with my other work, academically, I come to learn that in ancient Greece and possibly Egypt and Mesopotamia, Dance was women's primary form of spiritual expression. And in the major rituals for Greek goddesses, women danced, some of them all night dancing. So once again, it's connecting all these different strands. It's Yes, it's the physical sensation of the body with that physicality. You know, why are there Sufi dancers, for instance, with that physicality uh, creates uh, in us? And it's also dramatic. So again, bringing all these parts together. So when we go on the goddess trip to Greece, can we dedicate one full night to dancing? Oh, absolutely. As long as we can possibly be up? Oh, absolutely. First of all, in Athens, there is a group uh, called Dora Stratu Dancers that I believe in the early 1950s, the woman who started it, was to preserve all the traditional dances, songs, and costumes of Greece. And they have wonderful performances uh, that give you an, an array. But everywhere you go, whether they're formal dance uh, performances to watch or informal people just getting together, whether it's a radio playing or a couple of people bringing their guitars and people start dancing. We're going to take a little break again, and when we come back, we're talking to Bella Vivante also about the beauty of women and the Greek plays, the Greek goddesses, and how we might very well apply some of that incredible depth and dimension to our current experience in the Year of the Women.
So this is such a remarkable opportunity to have you here with us as someone who's written a book that uh, the name of which is... Daughters of Gaia, Women in the Ancient Mediterranean World, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, now we have the United States in (laughs) great need of some inspiration from women, for women. This is such a turning point year for us. How can we apply some of that um, incredible knowledge and spirit to what's going on in our country right now? Well, I'll start off personally. When I was in graduate school, after having lived in New York City, which felt so much home because it's so multi-ethnic, then Stanford, which was such a shock uh, culturally. So at night, images of the goddess Demeter would start coming to me. And Demeter was the goddess of grain, of abundance, of women's fertility, very much a goddess for women. And so it was personally very nurturing to have like that mother figure, we might say, who was helping me through. To take a huge jump then forward to both the social, cultural, political dimensions and other ancient Greek figures. So in the drama, there are many very powerful female figures. One that a lot of people may be familiar with is Medea, who is not usually one seen to be emulated because it's a very violent image. But in the comedies, we have another very powerful figure, which is Lysistrata. And the story of that play, which gets produced especially in wartime all over the world, it's become such a clarion call for anti-war activism. So in the play, Lysistrata gets the women of Athens and Sparta, who are at war with each other, together to refuse sex to their men until they declare peace. Well, in light of the ancient Greek comedy, it's all a fantasy premise because the men are already away anyway and the men can have sex with whomever they want. So as a premise, it's pretty hilarious. But in the play, it succeeds, and that's why Lysistrata, the play, becomes such a clarion call. Well, what's very interesting is that Lysistrata is very likely based on a real woman in Athens of the time because the priestess of Athena was named Lysimache. And as a priestess of Athena, she had the right to speak out publicly in the community as ordinary women did not. So it's very possible that she may have been an outspoken person that would have inspired uh, the playwright. But whatever the actual events of ancient Greece, like I say, this has been an inspiration uh, throughout modern times for women to become active, to speak up, not to just be back. So it's found its influences in all kinds of ways. Now, I want to mention another figure that most people think of in only one way, and that's Helen who most people know only as Helen of Troy, which was only like 1% of the iceberg about who ancient Helen was. So there's a play by the ancient playwright Euripides called called Helen, Helen, which portrays a whole other story about her. 
that she was never in Troy, was not the cause of that war. She was in Egypt the whole time. And then after the war, Menelaus, her husband, comes and gets her and takes her back to Sparta. But in the play, Helen is the one with all the intelligence, all the plots and plans that are needed for them to escape from Egypt. Helen comes up with all of the plots. And throughout most of the ancient Greek literature, Helen is portrayed as the creator of poetry, as highly skilled at weaving, which is a very valued skill, highly intelligent. So many of the lectures I give are about Helen and who she was and what she can represent for us now. And Helen was my mentor, the image that came to me as I was working on my dissertation to help me get through that particular work. So we may need some Helen inspiration, but I, I could think so. I certainly could envision putting together a kind of um, salon, if you will, where we really can bring these figures forward. And I, I couldn't think of a better uh, salonier. Uh, than you to help us do that in this year. And then I have to bring in, I always have an ancient Greek reference, Aspasia, who was the wife of the main leader of Athens in the latter part of the 5th century. She held salons that were political, intellectual, psychological. Socrates attended her salons. And uh, there's even evidence that she may have been the power behind the throne, giving Pericles all of his ideas for his political policies. So. Well, I, I think that you can definitely sum up and bring those images forward for us, the women of the United States of oh, America. Oh, yes. I like that idea. I love that idea as well. And to just be uh, read to about what those goddesses and women in history have done and their appearance and their interaction with people and their contributions, I think that would be and their extremely... Courage. And their courage. courage. And, their courage. and resilience. Yes. Right. And yes. resilience. Right. Very, very inspiring. And I think that, that you can remind us, since so many of us have been exposed. But this year, 2018, would be the the year to remind us. And a lot of what I do in my book, which is, first of all, I take an approach which is very different from what most writers of women in the ancient world do. Because most writers say, oh, they were completely repressed, depressed, oppressed, suppressed, whatever form of depression you can put in there. But I look at women as active agents in their own lives. And all of us always have to negotiate the society and the circumstances we live in. So I put that highlight on ancient women. So my book is very distinctive in that regard. And again, I give them their props, their credit for their courage, their resilience for what they were able to do within the particular constrictions they faced in their lives. We promise to ignite illuminate and inspire. And so I think this needs to be on our list of events 
active agents of our own lives. Yes. I mean, let me just put that right here on my chest right now. Okay. <laughs> a nice and a nice badge, maybe with like a little fire coming. Oh in. Yes. yes. So, absolutely. Yes. So we're already we're getting stirred up. We're getting with so our own stirred creativity up. here. And I know you wanted one more piece to feature with Bella. So yes, that take would it away, be Bibi. fantastic. And that is just tell us a little bit about what is in store for you, your path of artistry and creativity and work. What are the next six or 12 months like in your life? Okay, so definitely more theaters, still traveling. Uh, There's uh, a couple of people who would like me to organize a trip to Crete and Santorini. I continue to teach my adult lifelong learner classes. So talking about theater in the fall for humanities seminars program, a course on ancient Greek theater, and very likely also in the fall for the learning curve, cruising the Greek islands. So in preparation for whatever trip. Um, I still like... Uh, doing some visual arts, watercolor or pastel, I enjoy. And I still do some writing, occasional poetry. And I've been working on a mystery novel on and off for a few years. So again, wherever my creativity and the inspiration takes me, I feel I'm free to go and to continue doing what I love to do with people who enjoy doing it and sharing it also. Bella, you're a true muse in all the ways that that's meant. So A burst, a muse, a burst. I just wanted to add a middle to her name now. So it's Bella Burst Vivante. Oh, (laughs) That would be the name. And where can people contact you? Your website or email address or anything that you want to share? Yes, so my website, I really encourage people to check out my website. It's winged. Ariella, so wing, W-I-N-G-E-D-A-R-I-E-L-A dot com, all no dashes or anything, wingedariella.com for my website, or email me at B-V-I-V at wingedariella.com. So, yes, I would look forward to hearing from anyone about classes, arranging lectures, trips, classes I mentioned. Again, my book, Daughters of Gaia, through connecting with me, or paperback, which I recommend because it's got a lot more photographs in it, but that's University of Oklahoma Press. And um, and we'll have all that information on our show notes. Yes. Great. Yes. Great. All right. Thank you, Bella Vivanti. Well, thank you both so much. I surely have enjoyed this a great deal. We're and, ignited. Yes. <laughs> and Bibi, you're such an active agent already. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. You know, I find myself out of breath after we get so deeply engaged with these amazing, brilliant guests that we have. Bella Vivante, what energy and creativity. Tingling. It's hard for me to even really stay seated. I feel like I need to break out in a in a dance. And talking about the fundamentals of female energy and female power, if ever we were in a space to need an infusion of that, I think we're in it now. I think we're in it now. And let's take this further. Let's take this even further. 
I think that we need to put together an event with Bella where we can, in a sense, even use psychodrama with any of the women who want to enroll and so that we can really touch that motivation, that passion, and carry it into our lives at a time where we're really needing it, a time where really we need to come forward with our femininity in powerful ways. How about it, Bibi? Let's do it. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com, and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.